This is Rabbi Neet Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This is our The Chagimar Over Now What episode. So first we'll be talking about all the cool stuff coming up in the show now that the Chagimar Over. Um, and then we will turn our attention to Parashat Breshit, um, and with particular focus on the curses of Adam and Eve. And lastly, we will be interviewing my husband, Ethan Schwartz. Thanks for tuning in. So the Chagim are just behind us when our listeners are listening to us, at least. (laughs) (laughs) As we're recording, the Chagim are not yet behind us, but I I guess the light is at the end of the tunnel or the something that the tunnel is closing. I don't know that the the end is in sight. I believe that they will be behind us one day as the podcast is dropped. Yes. And uh, and so the question is kind of what happens now? You know, we've had this these kind of intense days where the whole community comes together and it's so nice. And then it's sort of like, okay, back to regular life for people who aren't Jewish professionals. This is very exciting, I'm sure. I think it's exciting for for everyone, for Jewish professionals too, because we get to now like take that inspiration and that um, experience of the holidays, that investment in our community, that investment in our own connection to the Torah and to mitzvot, and now we get to deploy it uh, in our in our real life. It's where the rubber meets the road. This is what it's mm-hmm. all about, and I think that's really great. I. I feel really, really fortunate that our shul is one where even as our numbers expand, of course, for the holidays, there aren't too many, like, you know, it's not like um, an entirely different congregation on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. The vast majority of people in our shul on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur are people who come, if not every day or every week, they come every month or so. And, and it's, uh, you know, I know most of the people in the room somewhat well, you know, even mm-hmm. on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Uh, and it's wonderful, of course, that we uh, have people who come a few times a year and that we can accommodate them and, and, and provide a, a service for them too. But um, they're not the majority. They don't set the tone. I think that's really nice that um, it's like a shul for its for our community and a community that has a shul. And the two are linked in that way. And that means that we get to then continue to spend time together after the holidays <laughs> are over. Uh, and we have a lot of really great uh, ways to do that. And I'm uh, you know, really sort of thrilled about the, like, the calendar events we have for kids, for parents, for adults, and, and everyone. And, and it's, uh, I think, a really nice uh, season ahead of us at the show. Yeah, so let's just talk about um, some of the stuff that's coming up. So, you know, some of our yearly programs are kicking back up. We have parent-child learning starting back up again. That's for kids in grades 2 through 5. Come with parents. When you come to enough of them, you get uh, a free uh, scoop of ice cream at Windy City. You get a cone also or a cup, I should. Oh, that's right. There, I feel last last year there was some uh, deep, was some deep confusion. confusion. Do I have to carry the ice cream in my hands? <laughs> yes. Do I have to pay for the cup myself? No. Uh, we'll pay for that too. I don't know. Maybe it's a Boston thing. <laughs> Anyways, um, but that's super nice. So for people who have kids who are just coming into second grade now or um, who for whatever reason haven't kind of taken advantage of this opportunity in the past, we come together either on Shabbat afternoon or Motzei Shabbat. Um, and it's a time for parents and kids to learn together and we have time we provide sources and parents learn with their children and then we come back together and have discussion all together about these sources um it's yeah. really great i guess i you know i've participated as a parent and also as a teacher and and both uh, usually and and it's it's a really really I, I think really enriching program it's wonderful for parents and children to have conversations with each other about Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as an educator, it's great to have a room full of adults and children. We can talk about Torah ideas together. And just, I just, you know, every 
um, extra, you know, 30 minutes, you know, whatever it is, 10 minutes uh, in the course of your week, in the course of your month that, that uh, children can spend uh, learning Torah, being exposed to Torah sources, I think redounds to their future literacy and fluency and connection to the Torah as, as adults. So it's really, I think, a, an important program and a really enjoyable program. And Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of those um, even 10 minutes, so we're also, last year we kind of tried a couple of times to do parent-child learning junior edition um, for kids who aren't yet fluent Readers. And um, we're going to be opening that up again this year with more regularity. It'll meet just during Kiddish, kind of a quick 10, 15 minutes. I think what we learned last year is that the more um, we can incorporate kind of pictures into our source sheets and, and concrete things that the kids can then opine about um, without their parents needing to always be the like interpreters and readers, the more successful that is. So that's what we'll be aiming to do this year. Um, and again, that's parents and kids together. Um, and uh, we're learning and, and and learning Torah together and, and we're learning how to do that well because neither of us are trained as kind of early childhood educators but um, but there was a request for it and, and we think the two times we did it it was mostly really nice so yeah so we're going to try a whole bunch more so yeah. uh, really different things for different folks but we're yeah excited about that and then we have some stuff also for teens that's kicking off, just for those of you who haven't heard yet, where you're, um, along with our other Lakeview partner, Synagogues, we opened a teen Torah study program this year called Tikkun Chicago. Um, I'll be teaching one of those classes, actually, an introduction to the Jewish library um, starting in November. Um, so that's exciting. That's actually going to be meeting at Anche Shalom on Wednesday nights, kind of at the same time as Baby Josh Wednesday. So you might see us here. Um, there'll be a dinner. And um, anyways, if you have if you are a teen listener to this podcast or you are a parent of a teen or a friend of a teen definitely um, encourage them towards Tikkun Chicago it's particularly geared towards kids who aren't currently in day school but day school kids definitely you know could learn more Torah also (laughs) Um, so yeah so we're excited about that too and then there's adults obviously yeah, so we have um, Beit Midrash Wednesday is is returning. Uh, that's our, our evening of, of scheduled classes. Uh, the opening series of classes is going to focus on Chicago rabbis. Uh, I think, I guess, since the very beginning, we've done sessions on, like, who are the people, you know, who is Rashi, who is Ramban, who is... Uh, the Nitziv, who was Nechama Leibovitz, and, and just learning about the personalities and trying to appreciate their scholarship in the context of, of their lives and who they were and what they wrote and what they taught. Uh, and so this is going to be a series focusing on people who taught Torah in Chicago and, and shaped uh, our community. So the first uh, uh, week is going to focus on Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, the... Uh, Chicago, so they check. Um, Spelled differently, apparently. Yeah, yeah he, his, his brother, I don't know, from the East Coast, I don't know, his brother, Rabbi Joseph Sotovechik uh, of Boston and New York, uh, uh, with the T in his name, uh, it, was, it was more famous, but uh, Ron Sotovechik was an incredibly important uh, and influential teacher of Torah, not only in Chicago, but internationally as well. Uh, and, and, uh, and of course, um, one of the great teachers of Rabbi Lupayan, who was you know, correct, a real correct. force in absolutely, creating absolutely. the shul as it is today. And who spoke about Rivarin a lot, and, and I think a lot of the shul men hagim actually... Uh, were influenced we're, by we're, we're, yeah, his guidance. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's actually not you speaking about him, right? We're bringing in a we're bringing in an outside uh, expert student <laughs> of uh, of uh, Rabbi Salvage podcast listener. <laughs> yes, podcast listener uh, Milton Rockschlag and uh, parents and grandparents of sh- beloved show members, obviously. And, and and most relevantly, a student of Aaron Salvage. So right. someone who knew him personally and studied with him is going to be uh, teaching that session. I'm really excited about that. Uh, he's uh, spoken about him before uh, in the community and. So I'm really excited that we can bring him to, to Anshe Shalom. Uh, and then the other rabbis we're going to focus on are Rabbi Rowdy, who was a uh, rabbi of Anshe Shalom, uh, one of the 
maybe the first really prominent rabbi to lead Anshe Shalom. We went to the south side, um, Anshe Shalom, Marianpol Cemetery. Um, and what I learned there is that Rabbi Browdy's wife, at least on her tombstone, went by Rabbanit. So <laughs> I'm not the first. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. So, so we'll learn a little about him and and some of his some of his writings. And uh, the uh, final class in the series will be on Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, uh, who was a really important philosopher of modern orthodoxy, and and was here in Chicago and taught here in Chicago, and was had a big influence. Again, not not just in Chicago, but really internationally as well. And so we'll mm-hmm. uh, look at some of his writings, some of his ideas. And he was at um, HTC, which helps us transition to our scholars and residents <laughs> coming up. Um, so we have in November 22nd, 23rd, we have a student of my father's, actually, Rabbi Dr. Zev Elif, um, who's just a wonderful human and speaker and scholar of American orthodoxy um, in all different kind of iterations of American orthodoxy. He put out this fabulous, if you don't have it at home, I, I really recommend a reader, a modern orthodoxy reader. Um, yeah, it's like a textbook of the history of modern orthodoxy. With but it's not really a textbook. It's like a collection, collection of, of sources, primary sources. sources, primary sources right, yeah. right, right. So you would use it as, I guess, if you wanted to study or learn more about the history of modern orthodoxy and its broader American context, it's a tremendous... You could, you could just sit down and read through these primary sources. It's newspaper articles. It's you know, letters and... to the editor. It's like docu- you know, advertisements from Jewish newspapers and, and short essays. You know, really get a sense of some of the like controversies and challenges and, and major figures in, in that shaped our way we practice Judaism uh, going back uh, over, over generations. It's really a tremendously uh, impressive work. And I don't quite under. Stan, you know, he's he's um, a young scholar. He's, he's younger than I am, and he's published, I think, six books already and, like, dozens of And some of them he published also before he even did his doctorate. I mean, as he as had published under- books. Like, as a college undergrad, yeah. It's, and, it's, and as a Smicha student, yeah. yeah. It's a very, I, I don't quite He's under- unbelievably accomplished, and yeah. I'm so excited to bring him here. And when he was in Boston and, and, and studying with my father, we he would, like, be around a lot. So we, uh, you know, we hung out with, with uh, we called him Zev, but <laughs> Rabbi Dr. Elif, um, um, really a lot, and he's a treasure of the show community and we're so excited to be able to bring him here. Um, and then after that, we really have almost every month we have someone coming in. We have another Chicago local, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Danishevsky, coming in December 13th and 14th. He's spoken at the shul before. We brought him for a uh, series of Beit Midrash Wednesdays, I think two or three years ago, and it was really like his shirim were, were like really different and really spoke to people and uh, brought people out to learn from him who uh, really didn't come to other shirim. They really, he's personal relationship with God and spirituality and in a very um, way that's both like spiritually deep, but also like really intellectually rigorous. And that's mm-hmm. a really like a special combination. And uh, he was really well received. I think followed the aftermath of those shearing, he was like actually grabbed to give an Eli talk. I think that was like yeah. a, was like demo tape or something. To so he's like you know a, 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 online you know uh, teaching to thousands. And uh, he then came back with Neely and spoke in our community. So I'm really excited we can have him for for Shabbat. It's a, he has a really unique voice, a special voice, and uh, I think it'll you know bring a lot to the community. And then we have, we're mixing it up a little bit, we're bringing in um, Michelle Greenberg-Cobrin, who is 
is being sent to us by Ora, uh, which is the organization for the resolution of Aguno. She is a professor at um, of law at Cordozo Law School, and I think she used to be at Columbia. Also, she was dean of students at Columbia, at Columbia Law School. Yeah, and uh, but she's also a Torah scholar in her own right, um, and so she'll be talking about um, Igun for the most part and and the Aguna crisis in Orthodoxy. And actually, we're hoping that that Saturday night, January eighteenth, will for anyone who for whatever reason did not sign a prenup before they got halachically married, um, they should sign. We're going to have a post-nup party and there'll be an opportunity to fix that. Even if your marriage is so strong and so wonderful, we're hoping you'll come out just to make a statement about this is this is the solution that, that we're, we currently have to this problem and you want to be part of that solution. Yeah, yeah. I don't, it's not, I don't think, we're, you know, people who are in loving, stable marriages, I'm not sure that they're at risk of, of, this, uh, of this problem, but I think it's a wonderful effort like it's one way to raise awareness to really hammer in and reinforce and make sure it's crystal clear that in our community nobody gets married without a halakhic prenup mm-hmm. and that's just a like like as a, a core a value and, and practice of our community that we're rigid about and strict about and and what better way to emphasize that is that people who've been married for decades before this uh, document even existed are gonna come together in public and mm-hmm. you know I think it's kind of romantic you know like yeah. a free, reaffirm their vows and show that uh, even after all these years they still have so much love for each other that they're going to sign a document to prevent themselves from causing tremendous uh, harm to one another and pain to one another and you know no, no matter what comes in the future yeah and, and what I always say to, to my friends or, or couples who, who are planning to get married is this document is not about we're for sure going to get divorced someday so let's make sure it goes well it's I love you and I want to make sure that whatever human I become in the future which I don't know what that's going to be you're protected no matter what um, and and obviously like we all continue to change throughout our lives so I, at no I, point does this become irrelevant the, the line that I say at, at, at weddings is uh, the halachic prenuptial agreement of this form of it is very much like uh, vaccination. Mm. It is extremely, <laughs> extremely effective at preventing suffering, but only if it is uh, signed long before it's ever needed, and also mm. only if it's like routinely signed at every single wedding, so that in those rare instances where it might be necessary, it's already signed as a matter of course. And right. uh, I just made a joke about herd immunity, but it's actually wrong. Meaning, if you're the one person who didn't vaccinate, so in a herd, you're probably okay. If you're the one person who didn't sign a halachic prenup, that puts you at risk. Right? You're at risk. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it's not going to save you that your friends all signed halachic yeah, Well, herd, imu- herd immunity in the sense that it becomes universal. It's not, if it's just a routine matter of course that right. every wedding has this, then it's not like a fraught decision. Should I sign? Should I not am I at risk am I not why does exactly. you know why is everyone saying I have to sign this like what do they think about my you know partner right now no it's just this is routine it's done that's the herd protection like it's mm-hmm. a routine part of every uh, Jewish uh, marriage and so there's no like fraught decisions we made on any on the shoulders of any oh, we can talk about this in January a lot, yeah. a lot. Okay. <laughs> well maybe do a whole episode <laughs> on Igor and we have a lot of thoughts about it um, the other exciting thing that's happening in January is that the new Dafyomi cycle is starting which is huge that doesn't come along very often every seven and a half years it's like the modern and so first of all like you can join Dafyumi at any time uh, right now we're in the middle of Masachet Tamid which if you want to make like an eight daf siyum uh, Tamid is fabulous full of wonderful amazing things about the Beit HaMikdash which obviously I love um, but um, you can also join for Nida coming up in just a few weeks mm-hmm. um, November right we're starting Nida October I think. October oh October we're starting Nida sorry um, and um, so that's gonna and Nida's 
like a fairly long but very kind of interesting masachet with all sorts of practical and not practical and and you learn lots about uh, the Zoroastrian neighbors of the <laughs> Jews. You have one of my favorite Talmudic characters is this uh, Zoroastrian queen Ifra Hormiz who appears in Masachet Nida a few times and she sends her Nida questions to the rabbis and she tries to like fool them and then they send her back these like cryptic messages of like haha we understood you sent us lice like we know what that blood looks like here's a lice comb um, kind of, well, anyways Masachet Nida is, is, uh, is full of wonderful things so you're of course always welcome uh, to join for that and the second Nida starts at the end of October takes us through the end of uh, 2019 and then in January the beginning of January is the start of Masachet Brachot and the cycle begins anew so it's, it's, it's just a wonderful um uh, like simple supportive framework to get some Talmud into your life. The way the Talmud, the Talmud sort of assumes you know the entire Talmud. So if you ever want to study any portion of Talmud in great depth and great seriousness, having like breadth of knowledge of having seen many different tractates and many different chapters will be useful. Really any, uh, I would say, like traditional Jewish scholarship assumes you know lots and lots of Talmud. So mm-hmm. that's sort of value in the kind of, you know, Daf is kind of quick. It's a little bit superficial, of, you know, to do an entire Daf in you know, 20 to 40 minutes is, is a pretty fast, Crazy. you know, pace. But, but the value is you, you get concepts, you understand ideas, and, and that's, you know, for when you are able to invest in a more serious, rigorous, you know, uh, study, really any uh, traditional Jewish legal or, or not even legal uh, mm-hmm. topic, you, you have, like, the, the the writers will make the, you know, these allusions to texts and concepts and... and, and totally. And, like, crazy. we were just studying, we just finished Masachet Me'ilah, and Me'ilah is a concept that comes up all over the place, but there were some basic rules about Me'ilah that I didn't, or just, like, the language that's used mm-hmm. about Me'ilah that I didn't know until we started studying it. So, for example, if you did it on purpose, you wouldn't exactly use the language of Ma'al about mm-hmm. it, because then you're you've done something like so horrible that it puts you like it's a different category it's, yeah. it puts you mm-hmm. out of the category which I, I wouldn't have thought like I would have thought Mila is misuse so Mila means misuse of misappropriation misappropriation of temple. of temple property which is like a crazy thing to do right like you're stealing from God um, um, and 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 therefore the punishments are, are, are quite you know severe and um and so but I would have thought that you would use the language of Mila about someone who did that on purpose also because it's this like kind of technical activity of misappropriation temple property and it turns out like I was wrong and I would have known that if I hadn't studied Mila so then that that just basic kind of simple fact will come up again all over Shas and in any kind of subject that you're talking about because Mila comes up everywhere right like in Masechet Brachot which we'll learn in January we yeah. are told that eating right enjoying anything from mm-hmm. this world eating drinking without smelling something bracha. nice without saying a bracha first is Mi'ila right right and so it turns out if you do it on purpose <laughs> it's not even Mi'ila it's worse I guess maybe alright okay, we'll, we'll, we can study that in Brachot we'll make yeah, that association well, uh, well Anyways, um, okay, anything else exciting coming up? Just we have a, a fourth uh, scholar in residence who's already on our schedule, so we can just sort of mention him, Rabbi Levi mm-hmm. Cooper, who is a very beloved teacher at Pardes, and he's the uh, community rabbi in the small town of Tzor Hadassah in the mm-hmm. Judean Hills, and uh, a, a really lovely, lovely man. I, I He was uh, Sarah's teacher, Rosh Kolel, uh, when she was in the Pardes Kolel in a long time ago, and uh, he's a, a delightful person, and he's coming as part of our partnership with uh, the uh, Mizrahi uh, program, they they support and subsidize uh, communities in North America bringing Israeli 
Torah teachers to come to American communities, and so we've participated for three years. Mm-hmm. The first year, actually, we got uh, Shai Sekunda, and he spoke actually about uh, the Zoroastrian uh, context of Hilchanina, actually, and, oh, uh, and other really interesting things, spoke about uh, Israeli cinema. Uh, cool. And then we had uh, Rabbi Blau in this for, for this right. project, and this year Lady Cooper. So that'll be really great. Uh, just a few other like learning things that are happening. Uh, the introduction to Jewish life and practice is starting anew. Uh, it's not a seven-year cycle; it's more like a year and a half-ish cycle. Um, yeah, maybe say something more about who that class is geared towards. Absolutely. So it, it's um, the people who tend to come tend to be people who are interested in converting to Judaism. But in fact, I think the people who could benefit from it is a much, much broader uh, segment of the congregation. It's just like, you know, I could share the the curriculum, but we study basic concepts of how Judaism came to be, how the Torah came to be, uh, how our halachic system came to be, our way of life came to be. And then we go through keeping kosher, observing Shabbat, the holidays, yeah, just very uh, like big picture themes, but also like very tactless, nitty gritty, how it's done, how it shouldn't be done. And I, I think there are just based on the questions I receive from members of the community, uh, I think there are many dozens, if not hundreds of people who could benefit from the class. And, uh, and if you want to know whether the class is free or not, a lot of it is on our YouTube channel. Correct, correct. I've now gone through the curriculum, I think three times. Uh, and so there are three iterations of me teaching the class, mm-hmm. uh, all on the Shul's YouTube channel. And, and you're welcome to, uh, you can compare it year to year. You can watch <laughs> a few classes and see if it's good for you. See uh, if he's gotten better. Uh, yeah, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, and, and, but I think if you can come in, per, you know, come live, I think it's just nice to be live. It's and you more, get to ask your questions. You ask your questions in the moment. I think it's, it's more, it makes it more inspiring for me to teach, knowing the people in the room as opposed right. to just uh, speaking to a camera. But uh, that's, that's starting again. We just finished the cycle. You can come anytime, drop in, drop out. If you come long enough, wherever you start, eventually you'll hear. No, make, I'll make my way yeah. through the entire uh, curriculum. But uh, I, in fact, I'm starting on October 28th with, like, what is the Torah? Where did it come from? And mm. how did it? How do we get to our uh, halakhic way of life? So, like, a survey of the Jewish uh, book bookshelf. Yeah. Um, and the um, the uh, also we, we are launching, uh, sort of midway through launching the uh, uh, WhatsApp pocket bait midrash, which uh, I. I uh, I'm really excited about it. I just, because of the holidays, I've not yet um, recorded the first. But my the goal is people are in a WhatsApp group, and once or maybe even several times a week, I'll record short divrei Torah that will be based on uh, easily shareable text. So usually probably something from the weekly Torah mm-hmm. portion, and that way, either with books or with online links, everyone who is listening can also actually follow along and learn the source uh, together with me as I teach. So I think I'll try to stick to content that is easily accessible, and so we'll uh, learn together something on the Parsha. And I think the advantage of using WhatsApp as a platform is that I can record it you know, in my pajamas at <laughs> 11 o'clock at night, if that happens to be a convenient time for me, and you can listen to it uh, whenever you want in your pajamas at 7 a.m. or whatever, or mm-hmm. 6 a.m. Or, or in the car or whatever, and it'll be short, but, but in a way that way we can sort of bridge together students and teachers you know, in, uh, mm-hmm. across, uh, across times. Um, yeah, and then there's some other um, just initiatives of of the revitalized education committee of our show, which um, you should definitely, if you know any members of the education committee chaired by Benjamin Cohen, um, you should ask them about it and definitely get involved also. But they're looking forward to the Global Day of Jewish Learning, which will be on Sunday, November 17th. Um, and there's me learning for kind of every age group um, available at the show. And this is a day it's run by uh, Rabbi Steinzaltz mm-hmm. and, um, and his kind of team um, and people across the 
the world are all learning on this one. Um, every year they pick a different topic, and um, and so we'll. Uh, it's called speaking volumes from ancient arguments to modern meetings, from raising our voices to remaining silent. Explore how and why words matter. That's the theme uh, this year, and we'll have different classes taught by community members at all different. You know, some geared towards children, some towards adults. There'll be breakfast, and it should be just a really nice morning of learning for the show. And then the other, um, they're also looking to partner with Nine Two Nine, which is a project that has you learning a um, five chapters a week of Tanakh. Um, actually, a number of members of our show, myself included, um, Ethan is coming up, and Yami Cohen has written for them. Um, they have every day when they start a new chapter, or you read a new chapter, so they, they publish little like 500-word essays on that chapter. Um, and so members of our community have written those and contributed in the past. Um, and so they're looking to partner with them and kind of raise the profile of 929 um, in our community as well, which is obviously very exciting too. Okay, I think we should uh, move on from this, but there's even more exciting stuff happening in the community. So if you're like, shoot, the Chagim are over, now I'm not going to have any Torah to learn. You have so much Torah to learn, and we have so much to offer, and we're so excited for all of that is coming up in the year. And this is what it's for, like the point of the Chagim and the inspiration and the reflection and hopefully like dedicating ourselves to... Um, priorities of Torah and Mitzvot can the, it, that's now that we've done that let's let's leverage that to mm-hmm. actually engage and we're really trying to provide many different opportunities for people to do that through our community yeah so this week's Parsha is Parsha Brigitte and obviously there's a ton that we could talk about um, but I actually got a question from someone recently who obviously I'm gonna pick this up with them again very soon but she was wondering about the curses of Adam and Eve um, that had been at the end of chapter three, after they've obviously um, eaten from the forbidden fruit. So we're going to talk a little bit about about that. Can you just elaborate? What was her question? What was this? Oh, her question was, she was interested in why bringing children into the world is so painful. Um, like, why is labor so hard? And, and no matter what, meaning even if you use all the drugs out there and whatever, let's say you like completely go under, you have a scheduled C-section, you don't feel anything from the beginning to the end, you still have to then recover from your C-section. You know, like, there's no such thing as a painless way to bring a child into the world. Like, human beings we're not created with pelvises such that we can like give birth to children and then like scamper off into the forest um, or women we're not um, and um, and like why is that like why why did God like why was this like the the brilliant design of a kind of to um, invent humans in this way and, and why does it hurt so much um, and what's the point so the Torah seems to say right El Haisha Amar Harba Arbe Etz Vonech Ve uh, this end in the um, Kaplan translation to the woman. He said, I will greatly increase your anguish and your pregnancy. It will be with anguish that you will give birth to children. Your passion will be to your husband and he will dominate you. So that that is a curse. And that seems to be giving a rationale or a reason or, or giving some sort of religious meaning to uh, this biological fact. It's a, a dark verse, a very, very kind of sobering a curse i mean the snake got it off pretty bad also and the and so the man ha- the and the man has a curse too everyone there's a lot a lot of cursing and then the expulsion but i would say that that men have done a better job at overcoming their curses than women have not to say that the doulas and midwives and OBGYNs in our community are not doing a great job they of course are and their work is so valuable uh, one important thing that we should note we should note is that these are in fact 
curses. So it's not like a mitzvah to experience pain in childbirth, just it's not a mitzvah for men to work the earth and suffer in the creation of food. Correct. Right. It, it, there's right. It's, you know, it's the sweat of your brow, you'll eat bread. So that doesn't mean that there's a, that there's no, you know, air conditioning is wrong or something, or mm-hmm. that you should, maybe you could only have air conditioning at home, but not at your place of work. Uh, right. I, I, heard, I read a New York Times article about how, how people now in, in like planters, they like stream just seasons and seasons of Netflix because while they're like in the driver's seat. Oh my gosh. Because it's like so, you're just, you have to sit there. Like apparently someone still has to sit there. It can't just be done by a robot. But like you don't really need to pay attention and you're just in this like cab for air conditioned cab for hours and hours and hours and people just like, Watch a lot of TV these days, apparently. Huh, huh. So, so farming is not no longer hard, and it's actually not not a new thing. The uh, you see some of the midrashim and Rashi quotes it that just even a relatively short time later, mm. Noah uh, invents a plow, right? And all right. of a sudden, it's like really easy or relatively easy to bring forth food from the ground again. Yeah. And it seems that Noah. Uh, and his father kind of notices this and gives it that that's his name maybe has that connotation because he's able to undo a little bit of that curse of the earth. And all of a sudden we have this tool that enables us to plant and to plow. And uh, so, too, it's OK and it's good for whatever method is that you think is appropriate with your medical philosophy and your body, et cetera, to try to alleviate suffering and childbirth. That's that's not a um, uh, it's not a good thing. It's not a command. It's not an obligation. It's just a. Uh, just a curse, so which which we seem to try to to overcome. There, you know, I, there's like apocryphal stories about some Christian group that like didn't believe in epidurals, you know, for, for yeah. based on this, you know, some reading of this of this uh, verse. I've also heard that's just like not necessarily. I don't know if there. I don't have any Christian uh, listeners we have, but I also heard that's not true at all. And <laughs> it's just a you know. But but even if it is okay, you know, Jews definitely don't believe definitely that. Definitely not right. Correct. And and we, we use we, everything available to you if that's what you want. And as well, again, also the the element of this curse of of um, the the domination of the husband is not it's not a command that families have to be organized in that kind of hierarchical dominant way. Uh, that's that's a description of um, of reality that you know is certainly true in some places and at some times, uh, but that's all in the context of a curse that we. Uh, that we seem to be in all sorts of ways trying to overcome through air conditioning, through the plow, through epidurals, right? Right. Uh, and through marriages that are much more equal and, and without that that element of dominance. Yeah, there, there's this funny uh, or f- wonderful uh, debate between Rashi and Ramban about that line. So Rashi says, meaning you'll have sexual desire for your husband. So Rashi says, um, women should not solicit sex from their husbands it should all be initiated by him and the Ramban says why are you saying that it's not true this is um, praiseworthy in a woman um, as it says in Erevin um, page 100 this is a this is a good a good trait in a woman that she she uh, solicits from her husband so so it's it's funny even on, on this verse which Rashi wants to and then Ramban goes on to, to read it in a in a different way because he still needs to kind of make sense of the verse if he's going to reject Rashi's reading. But even to say, you know, oh, does the Torah actually think that that women should not, uh, or that marriages should be unegalitarian in that way? And, and, and Ramban says, that's not even what the curse is, let mm-hmm, alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I um, have a vivid memory, you know, the first uh, vivid memory of, of studying this uh, parasha with uh, uh, Rabbi Dr. Moshe Sakalau, who mm. uh, at least uh, when I was in high school taught a uh, Parshanut Shior following the Hashkafa Minyan at Lincoln Square Synagogue. Mm-hmm. I think that was a class that actually started 
like years earlier by Rabbi Silver. I think that was his initial uh, uh, slot, like the post Hashgabah Minyan uh, Parsha class. Then he class. made it big. <laughs> uh, then he went off and started Jerusha. Maybe yeah. I, I don't know which came first. But uh, when I was in high school and living on the West Side, uh, Rabbi Sakalau uh, taught taught that class, and it was my first exposure, I think, to, to Parshanut, that, you know, mm. here's a verse, and here's what, you know, let's look at the ambiguity, and let's unpack it, and let's see what that conversation, the ongoing conversation of centuries has been exploring and delving into and making sense of those ambiguities in the Psukim. And I remember very clearly on, on this, this section, at the end, after uh, the serpent is cursed, and the woman is cursed, and the man is cursed, the, the couple, our ancestors, are expelled from Gan Eden, and the Torah says that God uh, placed... Uh, Kruvim, some sort of uh, guardian, guarding angels. Uh, some interesting Kruvim, like cherubs, we think of as being kind of cuddly and uh, babies. And babies. And, yeah. and, and these Kruvim. That's not what we're imagining in the ancient no, world. No. Ethan actually one time taught, like, co taught Ashur about the Kruvim because we have all of these, like, we have, like, Lamasu, and you can go to the British Museum and see, like, these Assyrian, like, mm. humongous, like, animal things. Um, and so uh, it's, we have a lot of, like, ancient artifacts that, that can. And shed some light on what we're supposed to think of when we say the word Kruvian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. Because the truth is, the Kruvim and the Mishkan also weren't like babies. They yeah, were definitely quite not. mature. And and uh, these Kruvim are, are guarding Gan Eden, right? So not, not babies at all. <laughs> anyway, um, they had this Cherev um, Hametapechet, a a uh, revolving. revolving sword. So Rabbi Sakala pointed out that in biblical Hebrew or in ancient, like swords were only sharp on one side. And this is so true that there's even a special word in biblical Hebrew for a sword that is sharp on both sides. That's called a like a cherupipiot. It's like a, a double right. edged sword. Double edged sword. Right? Yeah. It's like a different kind of sword. It's like sharp on both right. ends. That's like the like like a like the new like the special Another technology. Yeah. Yes, they are sharp on both sides, right? So but a normal cherub is only sharp on one side. So cherub mitapachet, this sword that revolves, is actually a sword which only has the sharp end. The business end is only facing out uh, half the time. Mm. And the other part of the time it's um it's not. And and so maybe Gun Aiden isn't quite as inaccessible as you know, we might think, and we say, uh, and we put the Torah back, we say, this is the tree of life, the Torah is the tree of life. We say, renew our days as of old, but that's a reference to Kedem, this, yeah. the place like in the east where, where the garden was, uh, and uh, maybe like through our connection to Torah, we're supposed to be like kind of restoring some of that Edenic life. That's maybe the point of the Torah. And so I think all of these, you know, schwitzing while you're working and, mm-hmm. and, and that, 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 I mean, look, it's, I don't think the schwitzing is just a, uh, I don't think it's not the sweating part. It, it's the, it's the Sisyphusian sense of, of, of degrading act-breaking work that, that is so unproductive and, and just all thistles and thorns are coming and right so mm-hmm. we have the plow and now it's like much easier and now mm-hmm. we have the combine which is even easier yeah. right? and, and, and we have epidurals and we have you know for those who want it and we have other ways of, of healthier um, less damaging uh, pregnancies and we have marriages that are more equal where people are husbands and wives are empowered you know to, to exercise leadership within their families and within their marriages and that's all um, about this Chadeshim Inukikedem trying to uh, navigate that Cherev Mitapechet and and to restore ourselves to to Eden. There's a pasuk in Yirmiyahu where the prophet talks about a a woman um, pursuing her her her, her husband in the way that. Uh, 
it seems the Mepharshim say was was not typical, maybe isn't typical, uh, and that that's seen as a portend of this uh, messianic redemption. That gender roles also are going to be a little bit undermined as we approach Shemot Hamashiach. That that all of these like and that too is like an Edenic return. Yeah, exactly. Of towards equality. That there's maybe you know that the world we yeah the things we find around us that are maybe are ubiquitous or seem ubiquitous or seem to be very ancient and mm-hmm. you know that they all be true, but that doesn't mean that it's the way things have to be or the way things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we can work against some of those dynamics, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and and I think I think you know. We could talk about this forever, and and there's not like a you know one final resolving answer. But um, I mean, like we can say, how did it get this way? Well, Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. Um, but but to say, well, why is it that that men no longer sweat in the fields, but women still experience pain in childbirth? And 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 I think it's just a challenge going forward to say, well, that was overcome to a large degree, and and there's a lot of work left to be done on like the other half of this. I, 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 I don't want to. Um, I, I also don't want to minimize the struggles that people have to in work. In work, yeah. yeah. You know, I think most of like, I guess, if you're listening to a podcast, you're, you know, this podcast, you're probably not like physically like hurting your. You're not probably aching, you know, like physically at the end of a workday. But but that is true for many many millions of people, men and, and by women. The way, I would say like uh, the doctors and nurses in our community who spend all day on their feet. You know that's hard. That's physical labor. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. So 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 even right there are even. Many and pro- I was talking to someone yeah, yesterday yeah. who said, "Oh, I used to be this kind of worker, and I switched to a desk job because it was literally too physically hard." Yeah. So so um, so, so I think so, so even so even so you know all around us there are people who have like yeah. physical pain from their work, and there are people who have that that sense of futility of I'm on this rat race and the more I work like the I still can't get ahead I still can't you know feel that financial right. security I'm still you know the percentage of Americans who uh, studies show would not be able to pay a, a $400 um, like unexpected expense right right is I think you know it's like most Americans or right. 30% of Americans some large millions and millions of Americans in the richest country in the history of the earth who mm-hmm. have a $400 right so, so I don't know that's I don't, and so the we, other piece of yeah. it is that we've attached a language of dignity to work, right? And there's something very Protestant about that, or Protestant work ethic, whatever, right? And um, uh, Marx also writes very compellingly about, about how the work you do becomes kind of, or it gives you dignity. Um, and, and, and I think, like, our culture is so, like, suffused with that. And, and it's worth questioning whether Judaism actually agrees. Um, right? There is, like, an, an, a, at least one version of an ideal lifestyle in Judaism that does not involve work mm. and involves just like just study all the time um, and even right so this is a debate that appears a few times in, in, in the Talmud and uh, most famously between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says if, if the Jewish people are doing what they're supposed to be doing like other people do their work for them like the ideal is you're going to learn Torah all the time yeah. otherwise Torah matahala, right this is my favorite set of mm-hmm. uh, Talmudic sources uh, otherwise what's going to happen to the Torah and Rabbi Shmuel says no my yeshiva is closed during the harvest season, like go harvest your food, make sure you're going to have enough to eat and then come back. But even within the opinion of Rabbi Ishmael, like if there were a world where your students weren't needed at home, um, would that be your ideal world or not? And that's kind of a a live question in in how to understand Rabbi Ishmael's opinion. Like is work some kind of ideal or is it just this is our reality and we have to bend our Torah study schedule around it? Yes. And I think that's also orthogonal to this curse because the curse is not you have to work, and that's undignified. Or I think the curse is about the futility. It's about the struggle. It's about the working mm-hmm. really hard. And A, you're in pain, and B, you're not getting ahead. 
I, right. I think because people... Adam also worked, right? He was put in the Gan Lo Vdal Shamra. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that Adam Adam and Eve were sitting around all day. The curse either. is non-productivity. It's the, it's the Kotz Vidadar, right? It's all this, like, you, you, you know, that comes out of the ground, thorns, things you can't yeah. eat, things you can't eat that hurt you and you can't eat and it's not what you eat, right? And that it's really, and I think that sense, I think there are a lot of people who feel that way and it's not about, um, you know, like Marx would say, that's alienated labor. And I think mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot, there's uh, that book whose name I can't think of right now, but the author I can't think of right now, who's saying that now it's that's actually spread up now to even like fairly wealthy people are also have, experiencing that alienated mm-hmm. labor where mm-hmm. they're just working all the time. It's the, the meritocracy that, that never gives reward, that you're always precarious and then you never feel that you're like, that sense of security. Uh, uh, even people who are objectively and even uh, relatively quite wealthy uh, feel that. So I, 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 you know, I think there's a lot of... Uh, uh, these curses seem quite relevant, and I think we, there's okay. a lot of work uh, in all fields for men and women. Snakes, too, certainly. Uh, we can help uh, over- <laughs> yeah, overcome would, these you know, curses. Snakes, maybe less of your attention. But <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> they seem to be doing okay. Um, yeah, okay, great. We're here in Shlensky Studios with my husband, Ethan Schwartz. So great to have you here with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so I wanted to have you here on the podcast, first of all, so that you would stop bothering me about when you're going to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and second of all, um, because so many people on the show say to me all the time, Ravani, who's your husband? And then point to some random man in show and say, is that your husband? To which the answer is always no. So Ethan, um, if someone wanted to like, I don't know, meet you, what would they have to do? Well, I think the one place that they could find me, which is relevant to why you wanted to talk to me in this context, is uh, uh, at the Torah, Laning in Shul, <laughs> uh, which is probably the uh, function I play the most frequently uh, in this space, um, often downstairs on Shabbos morning, but also in uh, other various locations and services. Yeah. Um, and why is it that you like Laning so much? So um, I'm a doctoral student in Hebrew Bible, and uh, laning is a great opportunity to um, engage with the text that I study and in a in a religiously uh, meaningful way, in a specifically religious context, and also to contribute to the shul community in a way that engages uh, those skills that come from being uh, a professional student of of this text. And it's definitely the set of shul skills that. Um, I sort of naturally develop the most in my day-to-day life from just reading Tanakh. So it's a it's it's a great way to contribute. One cool thing about your degree, which I just feel like is like a great party trick for you, is that um, you had to read through all of Tanakh and like parse every word. Um, and even on your comprehensive exams, right, they just gave you like hunks of translation uh, from random parts of Tanakh, and you kind of had to know what every single word in Tanakh means. When I first met Ethan, he had on his phone, he was like constantly doing flashcards, like all these different words in all these different languages. How many languages have you studied? Uh, Enough. Enough, okay. (laughs) I'll stop showing off about you. (laughs) And um, But right, so that's like a fun thing that then also contributes to being a really good leaner, which is that you just know the text 
very, very well. And you know how to read it very well because of your familiarity with biblical Hebrew grammar. That's the idea. <laughs> so um, in preparation for this interview, I actually gave Ethan some homework. And I asked him to prepare a few places in Parshat Breshit where um, someone who even slightly misread the text of this week's Parsha could massively change the meaning of some very beloved kind of well-known stories. So take it away. Yeah. Um, so I I basically, my, my goal when you gave me this assignment was just to work through the Parsha until I got to three. So this is certainly not the total number of them in uh, Parshat Breshit. I'm sure there are many more, but... Um, uh, I, I got to I got to three and I said okay this this is this is enough to illustrate and there are three uh, different kinds of potential mistakes in certain ways they all have to do with mispronouncing certain aspects of words but the grammatical aspects behind them are different so I think they illustrate a wide array of what can go wrong uh, and a lot more can go wrong in in laning than uh, than I think people often realize so the um, the Hebrew language especially as it's preserved so meticulously in Tanakh um, is incredibly elegant, mechanically uh, just very well-designed language that works in a very certain way, but that means that the rules can be knocked out of whack quite easily, uh, as I think we're going to see in these examples, which are very small. So uh, for those of you following along at home, uh, we are in Chapter 3 of Breshit, uh, which is um, after the account of creation of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And so now we um, get the story of where things go wrong and um, and the, the temptation of humanity and their eventual expulsion from paradise. And uh, we're actually going to pick up right in uh, the, sort of the, the moment of truth where uh, the Nachash, where the serpent uh, convinces Eve to uh, go ahead and take a bite of the of the forbidden fruit the proverbial forbidden fruit so we are in chapter three again and and we're going to start off in verse five so i'm going to go ahead and read it in hebrew uh with the correct pronunciation and then i will um uh, walk through uh the mistake this one is a pretty for those of you uh who have done some work with hebrew grammar or have hung out uh, with um, people who are really annoying about Hebrew grammar like me or uh, use um, tikkuns for laning that mark everything, you know, what, what do they call it? A simanim tikkun, yeah, um, that, that, that mark every possible little thing. You're probably familiar. You will immediately recognize what's going on here. But what we're interested in is the meaning and, and, and sort of the, the semantic stakes of this mistake, like what, what really is going wrong when you do this instead of just not following the rules. Why is it important that you correct so the verse goes as follows. Um, the, the snake says, Ki Elohim ki achochem mimenu, Elohim tov So the snake is uh, saying to Eve, the reason that God does not want you to eat from this, uh, from this tree is because he knows that when you eat from it, literally on the day of your eating from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be uh, either, you will be like Elohim. So you will be like uh, gods, like God with a capital G, like divine beings, something like that. You will be in some sense uh, um, on equal playing field with God in as much as you you are Yodei Tov Vara, which, you know, literal translation there would be knowing uh, good and evil, uh, which 
seems in, in context to be kind of an artistic way of expressing total knowledge, knowledge of everything, right? Mm-hmm. All the way from good to evil. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you will be om- omniscient, just like just like the deity. Um, so, so basically, this right, the snake is saying God, God is being protective of his special status, and that's the only reason you can't eat from this. Um, so, if you look at the word achochem, um, this is uh, a classic example of the phonological phenomenon known as a, a kamatzkatan in Hebrew, which is basically uh, a short O sound uh, that is marked in the Masoretic text by. Uh, a kamatz, which is the same vowel marker that normally indicates a long ah sound, a long a, right? Uh, and that's how we all learn to pronounce it. Right. So meaning, my name has a kamatz in the middle of it. So normally you pronounce it le ah. And if that were a kamatz katan, yeah, but don't even say that out loud because that's just not how the, how the rules work at <laughs> right, all. Right. But so. but just to give you a sense of like what what a kamatz katan sounds like, then my name would be le o. Okay, yeah, that would never happen. But um, so uh, right, so it's basically it's just a, it's just a it's it's a situation where the same symbol was used to mark two different sounds, uh, and there is a rule which oftentimes scares people because it sounds very like grammatical, uh, like uh, technical language. But actually, once you learn the workings of it, is very easy. That you can always tell that a kamatz is a kamatz katan, which means it's an o and not an a when it appears in a closed, unaccented syllable. Now, we are not, that, that's for another time. We are not going to, you know, talk about, talk about what exactly that means. Although, again, I promise you it's way less complicated. Than, Two years into our marriage, I have not mastered it. <laughs> it's way less complicated than, uh, than people uh, make it out to be for those who have a desire to actually learn the rules. Love me, my Simon. Not to name names or anything. But all you need to know for this example is that this this kamatz in achol chem, in that middle syllable there under the um, chaf, that is a closed, unaccented syllable. So that is a kamatz katan. That's a, that's a short O sound, achol chem. Okay. So um, there's this funny thing where lots of Jews increasingly seem to have, have at least heard of the phenomenon of the kamatz katan, but there's a sense that it's like, it doesn't really matter. Right. And, and, you, and, you know, oh, that laners, even good laners, right, sometimes say like, you know, uh, yeah, I've heard of that, but like, who, who, you know, who cares? Not like, correct blah, who blah, cares? blah, blah, yeah. yeah. So many people would probably read that as achalchem, right? Uh, and if, if, it were, if it were a long A, then technically that schwa would be a vocal schwa, so it would be achalchem. But that's another rule that nobody follows much to my chagrin. So uh, an average laner at many shoals would likely pronounce that word achalchem. That's the point. Ki biyom achalchem mimenu. Now, that vowel change is actually, you know, it's not just an issue of being precise and an issue of wanting to get the words right and follow the grammar right. This is actually a situation where um, where a kamatskatan really matters on the level of meaning. And I will say, just from the get-go, and you can back me up on this, that I when I'm a gabi, I try to be very reasonable about not overcorrecting and really trying to think about when it comes to vocalization mistakes like this, is it actually worth throwing the person off and stopping them? Um, does it affect the meaning? And I and I very often don't correct kamatskatan mistakes uh, because there's just no plausible alternative thing that they could mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I so I I really do I, I do not take 
you know, joy in like correcting people. I don't like sit there ready to pounce. Like my ideal, like I love when the laning is good uh, and I can just sit there as a Gabi and do nothing, right? So so I really try not to overcorrect on this particular uh, um particular uh, issue. But this one, uh, it seems to me, actually could affect the meaning for the following reason. So what's going on with this word, achochem, right? It's biyom, on the day, and then uh, achol, uh, if you just separate that off from the suffix there, this is an infinitive that is basically describing the action of eating, right? So this this, what we mean by an infinitive is that this verb, it's not paired in a limited way with a, spe- a specific subject, right? It's just the action of eating, Right, and then that takes this suffix that makes it chem, your plural action of eating. Right, so he's saying on the day of your eating from it, which is just biblical Hebrew way of saying when you eat from it. Mm-hmm. Right, and oftentimes in the Bible, um, you describe the time at which an action takes place by using this infinitive structure. Mm-hmm. Right, now if it were indeed, if, if someone were to say achalchem at least as I can uh, reconstruct it, that would be, that would sound exactly like this were actually a finite verb, achal, meaning he ate, and then chem there would not be a suffix of belonging, right? It wouldn't be a genitive suffix. I mean, he ate them, right? On the day that he ate you. You, yeah. Right. (laughs) So, uh, so, yeah, plural, yeah. right. So, ki Elohim ki biyom achal chem mimenu. For, uh, for God knows uh, that on the day that he ate you from it, right? <laughs> so, now you might say that in, in total, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And therefore, what else could it be but um, your eating? It's, it does seem to me that in terms of the word itself, achal chem could sound exactly like he ate you. This is a, uh, um, a case in which based on normal Hebrew pronunciation about how, because most Jews, uh, at least in, you know, more typical, less less kind of yeshivish Ashkenazi context today, don't really distinguish between a kamatz and a patach, right? It's just an A sound, it's ah, everything sounds like ah. So the, this would just sound like a, a past tense, what, what in modern Hebrew you'd call past tense verb, uh, and, then a, and, then the, and then the direct object suffix of, of he ate you. So, all right. Um, so you're turning God into somebody who eats eats people uh, in that case. So it's all switching from an O O to an A potentially. All right. Maybe we'll take a look at some other ones. Yeah. So if you want to jump down just a couple verses to verse seven, this is after the deed has been done. So verse seven, Vatipakachna Eneishnehem. Uh, okay, so so they basically what happens here is uh, remember what the snake said: your eyes will be opened, and you'll have all this knowledge, and you'll be like Elohim. So basically, this happens. Um, both of their eyes is after Adam right has already eaten from the fruit. Um, so both of their so eyes, Eve's eyes, like waited to be opened until Adam had also eaten from the fruit. That that's your department, not mine. Okay. Uh, so uh, so uh, both their 
eyes are opened and they and they knew it's an inter- actually just an, an interesting kind of um, pun isn't the right word, but it picks up it picks up on the snake's uh, warning in an interesting way because indeed their eyes are open and vayedeu right and and they have knowledge, but the knowledge is not tovara, it's ki erumimheim right. So there's something interesting there, but anyway, so so what we're interested in the is the eyes. So you'll notice uh, in that first very first uh, uh, word in the verse again. Um, this is uh, chapter three verse seven. Right, so you have a kamatz, and this is a real kamatz. This is a long ah sound um, under the pay in vati pakachna, right? And what that means is that this is from the the nifal binyan, which means that it is generally speaking the, the nifal, as in modern Hebrew, has a kind of passive or sometimes a reflexive meaning of what's normally an active verb, right? So like. Asa, to do, right? He did, nase, it was done, right? So um, so that's normally how, how this works. Uh, but that extra syllable in there that comes from the nifal, that vati pa kachna, sounds a lot less natural to a lot of, of people who know Hebrew because it's just a much rarer form than uh, the, the what, what we would call in biblical grammar the kal or, or in modern Hebrew the pa'al form, which would be um, tifkachna, right? The pe becomes part of the first syllable with the tav, right? Okay, so what would it mean in the kal? So in the well, think about the think about the uh, the blessing of God as as a pokeach ivrim, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I checked on this before, and I can't vouch for every instance of this verb in Tanakh, but normally pakach as a verb of opening eyes, seems to be transitive as opposed to intransitive, which means that it's something that you do to eyes. It's not mm-hmm. something that eyes do on their own, mm-hmm. right? So so we so we have statements in Tanakh of God being pokeach enayim, right? Mm-hmm. God opens opens eyes. So if this were tifkachna, then the enayim would be the subject of a transitive verb. The eyes would be doing the opening to something else, mm. right? So vativkachna shnehem would mean like their eyes opened the can of tuna fish or whatever. Them shnehem opened oh, both opened of them. them. Right now, strictly speaking, you would need an et there. So once again, you could claim, okay, it could never mean that. But if it was vativkachna as opposed to vativakachna then strictly speaking, the enayim would be the subject of a transitive verb. So in terms of incorporating this into how you, th- how you think about laning, if you're a laner out there listening to this, a- the place where I notice this mistake the most is in parts of the Torah that deal with the korbanot, where, uh, which because of the special readings for the holidays around this time of year, they're all over the place. Uh, I hear a lot of um, where the Torah says, yeaseh, let it be done, Right, a lot of yaase, um, let him do, mm-hmm. right, uh, and that causes real problems in terms of the grammatical relationship between the verb and because usually it's saying yaase, some sort of acti- right, let this ritual activity or let this uh, legal process or something be done, right? Uh, let this be done to the cow as opposed to let the cow do this. Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. So, um, quite so different. It might seem obvious when you're looking at it on a page like this, vati pakachna versus vati kachna, but when you're laning and you're fast and you're in, you know you're you're moving through it quickly, especially something that's very subtle like yeasa versus yaasa, that that's a very small difference. Um, but the the change on the level of meaning is quite significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last, the last thing I'll point you to at, at the, um, so we sort of, we, we get a moment from each, 
each part of the story we have right before the transgression happens, immediately after, and then in the consequences, in God's statement. Um, this this is a favorite of mine, and Leah has definitely heard uh, me talk about this mm-hmm. a lot because um, it, so, it comes up in so many central texts um, that, that show up from Tanakh in the liturgy. Uh, so now we're going to jump to verse 18. V'kotz v'dardar tatzmiach lach. Basically, God is cursing humanity and saying the land is going to only bring forth thorn and thistle. Uh, great coats vidardar. It's a great, great pair. Mm-hmm. Um, and you uh, shall eat the the grass of the of the field. Right. So the key issue here is is the accent on the verb veachalta. Right. Which, if you think about that verb normally might sound a little odd because if you wanted to say in modern Hebrew in the past tense you masculine singular ate, well, how would you say it? Achalta. Right, achalta. Right, yeah. with the accent on the middle so the syllable there, achalta. Right, that right. sounds much more natural. Achalta sounds like someone who doesn't know Hebrew very well and thinks that everything is supposed to, every accent is supposed right. to be on the last syllable. Right. Yeah. Um, but indeed, the trup in the Masoretic text marks the accent. And here indeed... But that's just a good thing, by the way, for our listeners to know, right? That the place in the word where the trup is, that's where the accent is. You don't have to know every single rule of biblical Hebrew grammar in order to know where in the word an accent should go. You just have to look with your eyes at any version of the Hebrew Bible that has ta'ameha mikra. The answer is right in front of you. Right. And oftentimes it's not just that, oh, it's like a little trick. Oftentimes part of the function of certain accentuation is to mark grammatical issues. I mean, if you look, just a great example from the previous verse we were looking at, um, if you jump, what was it, seven, verse seven, va-ye-de-u, um, you'll, you'll notice there's a munach uh, on the first part of the of, of the verb there, right? And the fact that there is an accent on that that yud, even if you didn't know that it's seire uh, is a long vowel, the fact that there is an accent there uh, tells you the next uh, shva there is going to be uh, a shva, a shva na, because of of that long vowel in the, in the previous syllable, and the um, and 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 the trup tells you things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely good to keep uh, in mind that the the trup is there to help you, yeah. <laughs> not just with like tune or whatever, but also with pronunciation. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So anyway, so let's go back to the example we were paying attention to before, uh, verse eighteen. So so ve'achalta. Right, so that sounds weird if you're used to speaking Hebrew, especially from a modern Hebrew context. But even in biblical Hebrew, the normal way that verb would be would be achalta. So what's going on there? Is this some sort of anomaly? Uh, well, no, actually, this is a particular uh, context in which this shift occurs, and um, it pains me to do this, but I'm basically going to use modern Hebrew terminology here because I know that that's what's familiar to most of you. Although, like, this is never how I would talk about this um, in uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of the the actual context of biblical Hebrew, but so. In modern Hebrew terminology, we, we would call um, a, a verb like a chalta, a past tense verb. What Ethan's bristling at is that in biblical Hebrew, there's no such thing as past tense. There's Yeah, there's strictly speaking, there's no tense uh, in biblical Hebrew. Uh, biblical Hebrew thinks of uh, verbs as having aspect instead of tense. We're not going to we're not going to get into that right now. But the but point is that what we call past and future tense in modern Hebrew that is a um, the Mishnah mis- already has uh, modern has past and future. It, yeah, it, yeah. Mishnah Hebrew is already well on its modern way. Modern Hebrew is based on yeah, Mishnaic correct, Hebrew. correct. Um, but I will, I will give you. Sorry, I'm going to go off script for a second. But just, to, ju- <laughs> just, just to make this point, uh, the one, fortunately, one of the best examples of why you can't call these things past and future tense when it comes to Tanakh is actually in our parsha as well. 
if you go to uh, the beginning of the Garden of Eden creation story, so we're in Genesis chapter 2, um, verse 6, ve'ed ya'aleh min ha'aretz, mm-hmm. right? So the verb ya'aleh in modern Hebrew, Leah, you would translate how? Uh, will come up. Yeah, he will, will he will go up. He will yeah, rise, he will right? Rise, yeah. um, he will ascend. Um, and that would be um, a future tense in modern Hebrew. So if we take that translation here, aid means like, some, there's disputed understandings here. Some people think it means like a mist. Some people think it refers to a, spe- a specific kind of river, whatever. We're just going to, we're just going to call it the aid for uh, simplicity's sake with an olive and not with an eye and aid, not witness, right? Aid with an olive. So, and the aid will go up from the land, which makes no sense because we're talking about the primordial past. We're talking about the beginning of time here. What is this? And the aid will go up from the land, right? So in fact, what's going on here is that Yahweh is not a future tense in biblical Hebrew. It is an imperfect, which means that it marks incompleted or ongoing action. So this doesn't mean the aid will go up from the land. It means the aid was going up from the land. The aid was in a perpetual state of going up. It wasn't something that happened right in one moment. It, it, it doesn't say vayal ha'ed min ha'aretz, right? Or vayal aid min ha'aretz. It doesn't mean, and at one specific moment, the aid went up from the land. It means this was happening on a routine basis, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we mean by it's imperfect, it's incomplete. The verb has not, the action has not been completed. It's something that's ongoing. So right there in, in this Parsha, chapter two, verse six, very clear example about why this past future terminology does not work for biblical Hebrew. All right, but, back to Achaltah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm so uh but but we're going to use it in this case. So we have this past tense, but what's going on here is that the vav at the beginning is basically converting what again in modern Hebrew we would call past tense into not exactly a future but into sort of a a statement of um of will like like God is saying this is what's this is what's going to happen, right? It, it's it kind of a uh an expression of divine uh, volition. So, um, so it means uh, you will eat the asev of the sadeh. You will eat the grass of the field. So, what actually achieves that flip from, again, in modern terminology, the past to the future or the past to the expression of will? Mm-hmm. It's not just the vav, but it's also this shift in accent, right? Mm-hmm. So the accent goes forward to the end of the verb, not ve'achalta, but ve'achalta. And without it, that needs to be read just as ve plus a quote-unquote past tense, right? And, and, and almost all Jews intuitively know this, actually, because um, in the Shema, it's not ve'ahavta et Hashem elokecha, right? It's ve'ahavta, right? Think about, think about when you learned it in Hebrew school and you learned it with the trup, right? Ve'ahavta, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's, uh, it, the accent is right there on, on, the, on the last syllable. And that is correct, even though it normally sounds wrong. If you were to say ahavta in a normal sentence, that would sound very weird and wrong. And it would be. Um, but in this case, it's actually right. So if, so if a laner, if I were gabbying mm-hmm. and a laner were to say ve'ahavta at esev hasadeh, I would 100% correct that. Because that completely changes changes the meaning, right? It does not it does not mark it as this converted past. And I just a quick story about this is that this it's such a it's such a like real rule that I have this very vivid memory when I was doing my masters. Um, one of my professors, uh, um, a great biblicist, um, a, like a, a gadol in the field of biblical studies, was reading a, a pasuk out loud, and he instinctively made this mistake. 
and immediately corrected himself. And I've never seen someone so mortified. He was just, he was so ashamed of himself. He was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this, right? Because because this is a serious, it's a serious grammatical rule. Um, uh, And I always think about that when, when, when I I see this mistake made in laning and people have no idea in contrast to, you know, this professor who was like rending his garments over, over this, (laughs) over this mistake. So, uh, so that's another important one to keep in mind. Um, and I just wanted to wrap up with, uh, you have some, some, uh, pet peeves that I think our listeners will find funny. Such as? <laughs> of what genre? So, so, for example, your favorite one from the Haggadah, from, from the Manishtana. Oh yeah, right. So, so there are some places where certain grammatical rules have exceptions. And so one of them is that the number two, the first syllable of the word, the shin gets sort of collapsed with the next syllable. So when, uh, you say, it, it really needs to be with one syllable not but the but the universal tune that everybody uses right separates it and by the way that would be a correctable mistake if it were laning because sounds like the imperative or the tzivui the command form of the of the verb shata to drink so it sounds like you're saying drink twice drink twice right <laughs> take two shots yeah exactly <laughs> right so uh so and leah knows well that at our at our sadar and while everyone else is saying I'm very resolutely saying there. Stay um, So, uh, so yeah. So you can, for those of you uh, who are teaching Manishtana to your uh, to your kids this this year, you can you know start the grassroots revolution and teach them stay and that is that is uh, grammatically correct, and you will be saving them from grave grave error. <laughs> grave error. Any other grave errors our listeners should uh, avoid with their lives? Uh, that, that, that you're right, is, is always a, is a, is a favorite one of mine. Uh, I can't think of any others at the, at the moment, but uh, always available to uh, tell people how they're mispronouncing uh, uh, the Lashen Kodesh, So, <laughs> um, All right. So now you've met my highly particular <laughs> husband. And probably will be glad that you have never seen me in real life. <laughs> You can talk about other things too, um, like baseball and scotch, and um, I don't know what else do you like talking. Yeah, that about? pretty much covers it. <laughs> Tanakh, baseball, and scotch. Chicago, Chicago. Right, right, right. Um, yes, yes, right. People always get a kick out of knowing that you're from like this very neighborhood. Indeed, your parents live in walking distance of our home and our show. And in fact, um, when I um, when we were dating, and I would come like spend Shabbos with your parents, we would we would walk to Anshe Shalom. Long before there was a job available here, um, so so just like a nice little tie between your family and their proximity to our Shalin community. I feel like also people get a kick out of knowing like you went to Anshamati school through eighth grade, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know what else do people always love hearing about you? <laughs> what are your other crowd pleasing oh, tricks? <laughs> Basically, that I'm married to you. That's usually my that's usually, <laughs> that's my usually claim to fame, and that's about it. Like, <laughs> that basically covers it. Oh, everyone always loves hearing, like, how did you meet? And um, for that, like, not particularly interesting story, you can ask us in person. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Straw Hat. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Hilly Lavendal, for all of the hard work that she puts into making this podcast happen and to making sure that Rabbi Wolkenfeld and I find the time to even put this together because <laughs> it's still the chagim for us while we're recording this. If you have positive feedback, please feel free. Find us in Shaw, tell us in person, send us nice emails. We love it. And if you have negative feedback, you can feed it 
get to a snake. Um, snakes can be found at the Lincoln Park Zoo and also at the Shedd Aquarium. And if you're really unlucky, then maybe in your backyard. Have a wonderful week.